everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 5. Um, and before we do, just you know, want to touch base on where we were at, what we've been talking about so far. Last week we started talking about the church in Jerusalem. If you've been here studying the book of Acts with us, you've seen how certain sections of this uh, of book is really broken down into... Uh, different areas of ministry. So the first seven chapters, it addresses for us the church in Jerusalem. And then it goes on to talk about the Judea and Samaria and how the gospel advanced in those areas. And then the last section of these chapters talks about the gospel going into the rest of the world. And now, while we're studying the beginning of the book of Acts, in the first couple of chapters here, we're looking at Jerusalem and how the gospel advanced there and how it multiplied and how the church was established and how it continued to grow. Last week, if you were here, we talked about how Peter and John, they were making their way into the temple. And as they made their way into the temple, there was this man who was a lame beggar and he was there for over 40 years. He's been there all his life. He's been lame since birth and everybody knows that. Everybody knows who this man is. They recognize him. He's been strategically placed at the front of the temple his whole life. And people are amazed to see that he is miraculously healed. Right? The important thing here is that there is no denying that this man was healed. They all knew him. This was not a game. This was not a lie. This wasn't magic. This wasn't a conspiracy. This was, in fact, true. There was no denying what had just happened, that Peter and John had healed this man who had been lame all his life. And yet, although you could not deny the power of Jesus Christ in this situation, although it was evident that he was completely healed, and although many, because of this, gave way for an opportunity for the gospel to be presented, and 50, or better yet, sorry, 5,000 people came to know Jesus Christ. They repented of their sins and turned to Jesus. Nevertheless, the counsel that these two men were brought in front of, having been arrested for sharing this gospel message, right? this group of Sadducees, which means a Jewish sect or party, uh, during the time of Jesus who denied the resurrection of the dead, the existence of uh, spirits, the obligation of oral tradition, emphasizing that acceptance is only through the written law. They did not believe. Instead of being confronted by this reality that God is powerful, that he loves us, that he sent his son and listening to the gospel, despite the evidence right in front of them, they suppressed the truth. They saw what had happened, and their conclusion was, let's not let this happen again. 
And so we see here, through this story, although the gospel was preached, although many came to see their own sin and turned to Jesus, we know that although wherever the gospel is preached, people will come to Christ, there is also those who will not. That people will not believe because they don't want to. Because the gospel is offensive. Because they are offended by Jesus. The reason you're offended by Jesus is because when you're confronted by Jesus, you're confronted by your sin. When you're offended, it's because you know that you're a sinner. You know that there's uh, the reality that you're not perfect. Jesus doesn't turn to you and say you are. Instead, when we see Jesus, we know that we are hopeless, that we are broken, and we are in need of a Savior. And yet people will see and hear this message and still refuse it because they do not want to believe. They don't want to confront the sin in their lives except that. And in turn, as we saw last week, as these people, part of this council, threaten these two men not to share this message anymore, we see that it's undeniable that people who don't believe will marginalize those who do believe meaning that they will mock them inevitably, they will tease them, they will, even to the, they will even persecute them to the point of destruction, to death, as we see very evident throughout the world, as hundreds, thousands, millions even of believers are persecuted and killed for their faith. And so, what happens is, what the temptation for us is as believers, something that we all have to be confronted by and ask ourselves is, are we conforming to the world or do we stand firm on our faith? Because the reality is, the truth is, a lot of people, because of that marginalization, because people isolate them, and because we have this innate desire to be liked by other people and accepted, what we do is we prioritize that above God, above the gospel. And we would distort the gospel, we change the gospel in order to fit what other people want to believe, what the culture says you should believe. And you forsake what God says in his word. And you change it, you try to alter it to fit what you want when that's not what we're called to do. It's okay to be liked, it's okay to want to be liked. But it's not okay when it gets to the point when you're compromising God's word for that reason. And those are realities that we have to deal with, that we have to be very cognizant of as believers today. Those are our realities. That's something that we can't avoid. But as we see here, I want to share a, a, just a quick quote with you from Matt Chandler. He says, we don't soften the message of the gospel to gain converts. You don't change what God's word says. You don't change that message in order to see people come to God. There's only one way, and it's repenting, recognizing your sin. And we can't change what sin is either, right? God's word is very clear on what sin is, and we have to repent from that, turn to him, and believe in Jesus. And we see here in this 
chapter, right, in chapter 4, that the remedy for this is boldness, right? A lot of the times we want to be liked and we want to be accepted. And it's hard for us to live that way, to navigate, trying to decide, okay, well, how do we act? It's hard for me. The temptation is real for me to want to just kind of put my faith to the side and just fit in. The truth is that we need to be praying for boldness, praying for it and walking in it. Because God answers our prayers. A lot of the times we try to be bold on our own, but we can't muster up the strength or the courage to do it. But we don't even ask God. Right? You have because you don't ask. So just like this church, as they model it for us, they prayed to God for boldness. Hey, God, help me be bold. And then just walk in it. Believe that God answers what you're praying for. And have faith to go out into those places and be bold. So this church, again, it models for us what it looks like to be devoted, glad, generous, right? We read about this church. We read that they are bold, that they are united. That's the goal for us today. But of course, that's not always, you know, the kind of traits that people associate with the church, right? When we talk about the church with everybody in general and we think about, what the church represents. A lot of the times people don't think of these traits here, being bold, being united, being devoted, being glad, being generous. But this is what the church was designed to be. The church was designed to protect believers, to encourage believers, to equip believers, to make disciples. But at times, there are things that happen and within the church and the church members, there are people, right? that aren't perfect, it's made up of non-perfect people, and so it doesn't always accomplish that. Point being, there are no perfect churches. No perfect churches exist. If you're looking for one, I'm sorry, give a church enough time, they will disappoint you. Or people in that church will disappoint you because we are flawed. We make mistakes. And when you look at this church in Jerusalem, so far we've been reading really good things about them, how they've been devoted, how they've given generously, how they've been great. And they seem, oh, well, this is the perfect church. This is a model church. This is exactly what we should be like. But because of the reality that we know that we're all not perfect, we know that we too fall short. And that includes the church here. And so it's important for us to address that, yes, this is what it should look like, but also understand that there are things within the church, too, that happen. It's not just on the outside. It's not just people outside the church who don't want to hear the gospel that marginalize those that do. There are things that happen even within the church body that we need to address. In chapter 5, it's going to talk about a story that helps us navigate a very serious issue here that we see time and time again. This big issue that we see within our community of faith is going to be highlighted this morning. As you can see, I'll have it up here. I'll spoil it for you a little bit, but it's the issue of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And I'm sure you guys are all familiar with that word. You guys understand what that is, but hopefully I'll give you some more insight into what that looks like this morning and how that plays itself out here in the church. Before we get into the bulk of chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses in chapter 5 this morning. But before we do, I want to read you the last portion here of chapter 4 to give you context of what is happening in chapter 5. So in chapter 4, we, we were there last week, but we didn't touch on this verse because I want to highlight it today. This is how the chapter ends, right? We see here 
chapter 4, verse 36, it says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold the field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what is Barnabas doing? Again, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, right? This is part of the traits that we see at this church. This was a community that was devoted to God, but also devoted to one another. They were willing to meet the needs of all members of their body because they were generous. They were glad. Right? Whatever it is that they needed, um, they were willing to sell their possessions for the sake of their brothers and sisters. And they did so gladly and generously. They sold their possessions, and what they would do is they would gather all the money that they have made selling these things. And a lot of times it was land, like we see here. And they laid it before the apostles' feet, meaning they gave it to the apostles, similar to what we do here at the church, akin to what tithing looks like, where you're not giving specifically to the individual that needs it, but you give it to the body, the leaders who know how to take that and then meet those needs. That's what the apostles are doing when they take in those resources. They can then decipher, okay, well, this person needs help. There's this need. There's that need. And they take it and they divide it into those necessary things for that group of people. And so that's what's happening here at the end of chapter 4. Barnabas sells his plot of land and he brings it to the apostles. And of course, this is something that is celebrated, something that people um, praise God for, right? This is an awesome thing to see people give their things away and bring it to the church. And seeing this, Ananias specifically, he comes up with an idea, or at least starts to think about doing the same, and yet we see how it is very different than what we see Barnabas do. So let me read here chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll pray for us and we'll get started. This is what it says. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, Sapphira sold a piece of property. And his wife's knowledge, uh, and with his wife's knowledge, sorry, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to, the, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Have you not lied to man? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, 
Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, thank you again for this time. I pray that as we open up your word, I pray that as we go through uh, this portion here of scripture, Lord, that we would uh, speak to our hearts, that we would be convicted, Lord, that these truths and that the story here would be um, eye-opening for us, that we would see the realities of our own heart and our own shortcomings. Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, we would be encouraged and challenged to leave different than as we walked in this morning. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So that's a pretty uh, intense little story there. It goes from, wow, the gospel's advancing. All of a sudden, these people come in. This couple comes in, and they try to cheat the system. They try to fool everybody, trick everyone, and they drop dead. And it says here in the last, uh, the last portion of this text here, and a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Of course it did, right? Of course people are terrified. Imagine you start hearing that God is now killing people because they are lying. All of us would be toast, right? Everybody would be fearful because everybody knows that everybody in this room has lied in their lifetime. Nobody here is exempt of that. We all have lied. But I want to get into what this portion of Scripture really is hitting home at. And as I already kind of spoiled it for you, um, this is something that I think is very prevalent for us and that it is very important for us to address. There's a lot to unpack here. There's a few verses here that we'll look at. But I want to narrow this down into one big idea. uh, And we can go from there. So... Again, the one reality that is still very present in our church today is a degree of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy meaning, right, that forever, you know, even back then and now and until the end of time, there will always be hypocrisy that is present among the people of God. And what does that look like, right? to look like or act like you're more mature, more spiritually mature than you really are. Um, You know, hopefully that's not you, but a lot of the times we see that. A lot of the times people do that because like Ananias in this story, you're hoping to, I don't know, gain some kind of credibility, exception. Um, You just at least want to look the part. Even if you're not seeking any, like, praise, you just don't want to have people breathing down your back. Maybe that's why you do it. Hypocrisy may not even be because you want to gain something, but you want to avoid something, right? And so we all kind of, at times, can be prone to this. We can be guilty of being hypocrites, and I think that's something that is often associated with 
Christianity, unfortunately. We know that a lot of the times that just happens to be the case because although we know something is right, we don't always do it because we're not perfect. But it also goes beyond that. Sometimes we intentionally are doing these things and pretending like everything's okay when we know that it's really not. Hypocrisy here, I have a definition for you. It's on the screen. It's the practice of claiming to have moral standards or belief to which one's own behavior does not conform. Right? You set these levels of standards. You say these things. And yet your life does not align with anything that you say. Anything that you claim to believe. If you look back at the story, Ananias, what does he do? He notices the end of chapter 4, that Barnabas is giving away his things. He sees what he has done. And of course, he probably sees the reception that it gets. How people praise this act. And because of this um, reception that he most likely received, instead of seeing that and asking God, please God, give me a heart like Barnabas. Give me a heart that wants to be generous, that desires to give, that is not so... Uh, so tightly grasping on to the things that I have. Help me be more kind-hearted and devoted to others. Instead of doing that, instead of going to God and asking for that heart, for a genuine desire to do those things, instead he sees what comes from it, and he says, I can do that. And he plans to do I'm going to sell my things. And it's his. He has the money. He has all of it. And then he decides, you know what, actually I'm not going to give away all my things. I'll get the money. He brings his wife in on his plan. He says, we'll say that we gave everything, but really we'll just give half of what we made on the land. We'll keep the rest to ourselves. And it's crazy because this could have been avoided. He could have gone in there and been like, hey, here's half of what I have. I just have half. We're going to keep the rest. This is all we can give. And he wouldn't have been lying. He could have easily had done that. It's not a problem, but instead he takes it and he says, this is everything. And tries to fool these people. Tries to trick them. He tries to seem like he's doing something that he is not. He sold his piece of property and he intended to keep part of the proceedings for himself. But instead he acted like he gave it all. Him and his wife, they were partners in this deception, and they both wanted the image of great generosity without actually being generous. I mean, they were generous. They gave half, and I'm sure that was a lot. But they wanted to paint this picture of themselves that was not genuine, that was not real. The question that I want to address today then you know, as we kind of look at our own lives and we look at our own situation, we look at the church today. Again, we're talking about things that we still see in our culture today, that we still see in the church today. The question I want to ask is how can we fall into hypocrisy in our own right? How do we get to this place where we damage the name of Christ and the local church? There are two points that I want to talk about today. And hopefully we get through them quickly. But the first thing I want to say is this. As a Christian, if you are walking in hypocrisy, you have most likely forgotten one thing. 
what the gospel teaches us about ourselves. This quickly happens the moment that we forget that we are sinners in need of grace. And so the first thing that I want to say, if you are somebody that's dealing with hypocrisy, the first thing that you need to do is remember the gospel. The first thing that you need to do is remember what the gospel says about you. Remember when we said a few weeks ago that Jesus is offensive because he tells us what is true about ourselves. We aren't perfect. That we are helpless and broken. And because of God's grace, we are forgiven. This happens time and time again. People receive God's word and they naturally begin to observe what other believers are doing, right? You go into a church for the first time and you start to see, oh, they wear certain things and they dress like this. They talk a certain way. They say certain things. They have that, as people would say, Christianese, right? And you start to learn from other people around you. You start to pick up on certain things. Here at Maranatha, if you come here long enough and you sit through the main service, at the end of every service, they say, good morning and what? You can only come here about, what, two weeks and you can start saying that. And it seems like you've been here forever, but you don't even know what Maranatha means. But you're just going to say it because everybody says it and that's just what I'm supposed to do. But your heart doesn't really want the Lord to come back. You don't even know what that means. You kind of just go with it. I think we're all kind of guilty of that to some extent. Just kind of picking up on social cues on certain things that are happening around us and we have the general tendency to want to fit in and I get that. However, hypocrisy, although it speaks the language, it copies the action, the problem is this. You don't understand the heart behind it. You don't understand why maybe somebody dressed a certain way. Because of the call of, and conviction for modesty, you don't understand why we say certain things. That when we call out to God and say Maranatha is because, hey, we understand God is coming back one day. And we eagerly await that day. People don't really even care about that. It's not at the forefront of their minds. And so instead, hypocrisy is bred when we forget that we're sinners and forget that we are in need of the grace of God and that it's not us that is actually working, it's the Holy Spirit who is working good things through us. Sometimes it's an, an ego thing or, or, or thinking that we can do things on our own, but it's really not. And we end up playing pretend. Ananias, he had a greedy heart. He had a heart that desired his things and wanted it. And rather than acknowledging the fact that he did have this problem and cry out to God, cry out for a changed heart, for a heart that desires to be generous, instead he ignored it. And what he did was decided to act like Barnabas did and do what Barnabas did, yet his heart was in a totally different place. He just copied the action but did not have the same heart behind it. When he brings um, his earnings into the uh, 
place where the apostles are, and he puts it before the apostles. It's incredible because Peter immediately knows that he's lying about it, and he calls him out for lying. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but if you've ever been caught for lying, right, or you've ever been caught in the middle of a lie, you know what that feels like, right? It's pretty, it's pretty, uh, pretty intense. Um, this past week, I was in Austin, Texas, and I was there for my cousin's wedding. And we were walking down the road, and, you know, late one night, it was the first night we had gotten there, and we wanted to go get something to eat before we went back to the hotel um, and, and slept for the night. But as we're walking out uh, at night, trying to look for a place to eat, I recognized, or at least I saw kind of in front of us as we were walking, that there were these two people trying to get into this bar. And this gentleman and this younger lady, and she kind of looked pretty young, but uh, she, she hands the, the guy at the front door her ID. And I knew that she looked young, so I'm sure that he is trained to see those things. Um, but he pulls out the ID, starts to look at it and expects it, looks at her and says, oh, wow. Oh, you're from New Jersey. I'm kind of familiar with that area. Where are you from? And I was walking by, and all I heard the girl say was, uh, and safe to say she didn't get in, right? She obviously had a fake ID. The guy didn't buy it. She looked really young, and it didn't work. Um, quite embarrassing, but I can kind of see her reaction, see the look on her face. And I walked by, and obviously me and my wife were kind of chuckling a little bit, and, and that's a pretty embarrassing moment, but it is what it is. You got caught in a lie, but we all know what that feeling is kind of like, right? If somebody tries to catch you in a lie or they know you're going to say something, but they already know the truth, and they tell you you're lying, and you know what that feeling is. Your heart drops to the bottom of your stomach, your face turns white, and your brain starts buffering, right, like a... Like you have really bad internet connection and you can't think of anything and you can't say anything. You just, you're trying to say something and you just stutter like her. You're just, uh, you can't get the words out because you know you're, you're done. You're, you've messed up. And so I would assume here that this guy, Ananias, right, he's in this position where he's like, uh, how, how do you, in his mind he's thinking, how does he know who told him what's going on? And he knows he is caught. He is crushed. Because Peter, he goes on this whole rant. He doesn't even just say, hey, why are you lying? Give him an opportunity to respond. The guy knows he's been caught red-handed. And he's telling him, what have you done? Why are you doing this? You didn't need to do this. You're not lying to me. You're lying to God. No matter who you are, again, you know what that feeling is like to feel or think you're going to receive something and end up receiving something totally different, and in this case, a lot worse. He was anticipating praise, but instead he got rebuked. And it's remarkable how hypocrisy, it tends to cloud our judgment. It tends to uh, blind our decision-making. But the truth is, no matter how well that Ananias had planned this out. 
no matter how good he had orchestrated this plan, it could have been a whole um, Ocean's Eleven type of ordeal, right? When they plan everything out, everything is perfect. Calls up George Clooney, hey, dude, I need your help. And they scheme out this perfect plan to trick and deceive these apostles. No matter what they had done, he wasn't lying to them. Peter, again, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Listen, I do want to say this this morning. There are many situations where we fool people. There are many times when we think that we've gotten away with it, and you might do so for your entire life. You might have everybody fooled. You might have tricked everyone in your life. And let me just first say before I go on, you haven't. I was in your shoes once before, and I thought I was the smoothest guy. I thought I got away with everything. People know. So if you're trying to hide something in your life, and you think you're the best at keeping it a secret, and you think nobody knows, and you're getting away with it, you know, scot-free, let me just tell you right now, people can pick up on things. You know, even the best actors in the world, they have to change their roles because they don't keep playing the same character their whole lives. If you think that you can play this act for your entire life and get away with it, man, good luck. It's exhausting. I know from personal experience. Trying to play two different lives. That the person that walks in that door is totally different than the person that leaves. I know what that's like. And if you think you're getting away with it, good job. But I'll tell you what, you can fool everybody. You can have everybody fooled at the end of your life, like a, like a movie with an incredible plot twist. You might fool everybody, but there's one person you do not fool, and you never will fool, and that is God. God knows all things. If you think you're getting away with it, I just encourage you to Face the reality that no matter what you do and no matter who you are, God knows. And there is nothing that you can hide from God. Here's a little portion of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 say this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, he will also the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And that is why we preach the gospel over and over and over again, because being a follower of Jesus is not a checklist. It is not a set of rules. It is not something that you just do, that you copy attitudes, you copy behaviors, because you have to follow a certain law. No, Christianity is meant to be treated like a totally different way that you treat your school sometimes. You know, I just went back to school. A lot of the times, like, man, I don't care what I have to do. I just need the grade. I don't really actually want to learn the material. I just want to ace this test. I, I don't care about what happens throughout the entire school year, but so long as I get the degree at the end, I'm good. I don't care about the whole process. I don't care about the journey. I just want what's waiting for me at the end. That is not what Christianity is. And hypocrisy, it leads people away from the gospel. We need to know that we are in desperate need of grace and we are broken and hopeless without God, that there is no secret between you and God because he already knows. He exposed your sin already on the cross. 
When Jesus died, he reveals to everybody that nobody in this room is perfect. So you try to pretend that you are, we all know that you're not. And what a comfort it is to know that a God is out there that loves you and cares for you and wants you to be open. That wants you to come with him, to come to him better yet. And not just to him, the next point I want to make here as I close and get into this quick little time where I want to invite you to do something is this. Hypocrisy can also flourish because we fail to walk in communion with one another. We are willing to challenge, you know, who are willing to challenge us to reveal what is really going on in our lives. A lot of the times what we do is we privatize things in our lives. And I want to tell you again, that is not helpful for your faith. Your doubts, your weaknesses, your struggles, anxieties, some of you that are feeling depressive emotions, all those things, you try to bundle that up and keep that in you and you're ashamed of it. But I want to tell you that that might be part of the journey. Throughout your walk with the Lord, there might be times where you don't understand what's going on, how God is working, and why there's this, and why that's happened. You might have questions, and you might have doubts, but I urge you, don't keep that to yourself, to confide in others, to share that with other people, to cry out to God, to pray to him like you see in Mark 9, Lord, help my unbelief. The last point I want to make just out of the two points is this. Find a community. If you refuse to walk in a community that encourages this attitude and behavior, it's easy for hypocrisy, for hypocrisy to settle in. Maybe you're here this morning, and I don't know everything about you, and I don't know what's going on, but I do know from my own personal experience, based on statistics and just what I do know about you, that Nobody here is perfect, that every single person here is struggling. Some of you may not even have a relationship with God at all. For all being honest, you have never repented of your sin. You have never turned to God. But I want to encourage you, one, to do so, and if you have done so already, to find people that you can come alongside, that can come alongside you and do life with you. If you struggle with lust, if you watch things or do things that you shouldn't, if you say things that you shouldn't and you hide it, that doesn't stop you from repenting and wrestling with these struggles and acknowledging that you have an issue. No one walks away from the Lord overnight. That stuff builds up because we don't bring it to light. I just want to share this these two verses here with you. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a reward, a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one lift them up, his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is quickly is not quickly broken. Hear what he's saying. It is good to have people in your life, at least one, where there are no secrets, where you don't keep anything from them, where they know who you really are, not the person that you pretend to be sometimes, but the person that you are, the struggles that you have. You can be honest and vulnerable with them, transparent. These relationships expose our weaknesses, 
We invite others into our lives to pour out and impart wisdom in our lives, and then we can do the same, reciprocate that for them. Iron sharpens iron, and the one man sharpens another. If no one knows that you're struggling, if no one knows you're weak, then how can we be encouraged? How can we be challenged? If you got things in your life that nobody knows about, you keep it to yourself. How can you be held accountable of those things? How do you expect to change? You're fighting yourself, telling why do I not change? Or why am I doing the same things? Why do I keep struggling with this? But you keep it to yourself, and you've never even told somebody. You've even, never even asked for help. You, you don't surround yourself with people that are going to help you and encourage you. A lot of the times, if you do surround yourself with people, you're surrounding yourself with people like Ananias and his wife here who come together and scheme together and pull you away from God. But don't point you to him. And so if you want to stop being a hypocrite, find yourself somebody, find yourself a group of people that you can be honest and transparent with who knows that you're weak because they are all weak themselves. And that is my heart behind what we have here with the D groups. That's how I want to close. The way that we remedy and solve this issue of hypocrisy is by remembering the gospel and two, finding a community. With this D group, as I mentioned earlier, it's a small group of people that you can come alongside and grow together. I want you to be honest and transparent. I want you to get outside of your comfort zone, perhaps, and share the things that you're going through. Because if you want to change, if you honestly want to grow spiritually, that's what it takes. That's what it requires of you. And it's not just you personally growing, but it's you helping those that are in your lives, walking alongside them. And so today, as I pray as we close, there's these sheets in the back. There's a guy sheet and a girl sheet. If you haven't registered already for a D group and you want to be a part of something like that, please register for that before you go. All right? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for all this that you have given us and everything that you have done in our lives. I pray that uh, we would be challenged this afternoon, Lord, to be honest with ourselves, to be vulnerable, Lord, with others and not try to play this exhausting game of pretend, but that we would truly know you and walk with you. Lord, we thank you again for the body of believers that are here, the people in this room that know our struggles, know what we go through. I pray that we would encourage one another. And we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, good morning, citizens.